For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Have you listened to episode 115 about garment workers and COVID-19? Great, now try this one. Originally published in Series 1, it offers some useful background info on the living wages issue. It came out of a 2017 Oxfam report called What She Makes, focused on the women who make our clothes in Bangladesh. Since then, the minimum wage has gone up. In this interview, James Dunlop mentions the equivalent of 87 Australian dollars a month. Now, at the end of 2018, the Bangladeshi government raised the minimum wage to 8,000 taka, which is about 90 US dollars a month or 140 odd Australian. But it's still not enough. In January of 2019, thousands of workers responded by going on strike. And the police used tear gas, batons and rubber bullets to control them, killing one and injuring scores of others. In 2020, Clean Clothes campaign says that rising living costs, plus the way that the increases are calculated for different pay grades, mean that most of Bangladesh's garment workers still fall far short of earning a living wage. Inequality isn't going anywhere. As of January 2017, so much wealth was in the hands of so few people around the globe that just eight men held the same amount of riches as half of all humanity. I mean, (laughs) I can hardly read that without being mad. Armancio Ortega is on that list. He is the founder of Inditex, which owns Zara. Based on CEO pay levels of some of the big brands in Australia, it would take a Bangladeshi garment worker earning the minimum wage more than, wait for it, 4,000 years to earn what CEOs get paid in just one year. For this episode, I chatted to some shoppers to see how much they knew about all this. I also visited Oxfam Australia's head office. The additional sound grabs you will hear are from Emma Daly, comms director of Human Rights Watch, from Clara Vuletic's TED Talk, which is titled How to Engage with Ethical Fashion, and from episode five of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast with Kalpona Actor. Once you're done here, definitely check out that one, which we're also reissuing. I see you've got a shopping bag in your hand there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, did you buy a shirt, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just had to get a couple of new shirts for work, so. Have you ever thought about who makes them? No, not really. (laughs) I want to ask you something. How much of the percentage of what you paid for those shirts do you think went to the person who sewed it? Who sewed it? Um, 10%? Oh, hi. Do you mind if I ask you a quick question about how you're shopping? Sure. Have you ever thought very much about who makes your clothes? Uh, Not really, no. If you were buying a new T-shirt and it cost 20 bucks, can you just guess how much of that 20 bucks might go to the person who sewed it? Maybe $5 or so. Fast fashion has turned us into these passive consumers who are constantly chasing the fantasy that buying more clothes will make us happy. And as we know, the people who make our clothes, they're often working in quite far away countries from us here in Australia, in quite poor working conditions and paid quite poorly. We're here at Rana Plaza in April 2013. A building housing several garment factories here collapsed killing more than a 1,000 people. We've seen significant improvements to health and safety conditions in Bangladesh's factories. 
But we've also documented continuing and serious violations of labor rights, including workers who are forced to work overtime, sometimes without being paid for it, workers who are subject to verbal and even physical harassment, often because they can't meet production quotas, and factories that deny workers sick leave or maternity leave, even holidays. My fight will not end until we can ensure a jobs with dignity. And a dignity can be earned with a living wage, a safe workplace, and a union voice at the workplace. So workers have right to organize and right to bargain. And I will not stop coming back to you all until you act to ensure that jobs with dignity. And trust me, together we can ensure that. Because you consumers, your voice is crucial. It is really matters. I'm here in Oxfam, Australia's head office in Sydney with James Dunlop. I wonder if you might just tell us a little bit about your role at Oxfam, James. I am one of the senior campaigners at Oxfam Australia. So I work on Oxfam's campaigns on climate change, on labour rights and on Indigenous issues. We're here to talk about this new campaign, which is What She Makes. It's very exciting. Before we do that, I wonder if you might like to just tell us why does Oxfam get involved in these issues around labour rights? Because I think some people might be listening and thinking, well, I know Oxfam as a charity that helps out with famine relief or disaster relief. Why does Oxfam get involved in this supply chain stuff? Yeah, sure. People often know Oxfam for, you know, after a tsunami or an earthquake or right now in Bangladesh with the Rohingya crisis, like Oxfam will be there. But at the same time... Or getting a goat, because I got one for Christmas. Yeah, or getting a goat. We do a lot of fundraising and, you know, the money that money will go to our disaster relief or our long-term development work. At the same time, Oxfam's about supporting the poorest and most vulnerable communities in the world. And we do that, obviously, through humanitarian relief. But at the same time, we work to change the system that produces poverty. And so if we can... We, Oxfam aims to do both. And our work on garment workers' rights um, falls into that category. The level of production in Bangladesh is increasing, and Bangladesh is among the lowest-paying clothing-producing countries. The minimum wage in Bangladesh is one of the lowest across any of the countries that we're focusing on. We're also looking at Cambodia, Vietnam, and Indonesia. And, of course, what happens here is big brands chase the cheapest needle. So... Even though China is still the biggest garment-producing nation in the world, costs are going up there, wages are rising, conditions are improving, and then brands are finding that that's too expensive, and so they're running away trying to find the cheapest alternative. Bangladesh has four million garment workers, and as you said, the majority of them are women, and we're paying them peanuts. Do you know, James, how much of the apparel sold in Australia, roughly, is made in Bangladesh? I think it's probably about 9%. You know, but what she makes is specifically about paying garment workers a living wage. The reason why Oxfam's launched what she makes is that the women that make our clothing, predominantly around the world, aren't being paid enough to live on. They're not being paid enough for adequate housing or health or food or enough for meagre savings to put aside for unexpected things to happen. We focused on Bangladesh for the launch of this campaign because the minimum wage in Australian dollars, in Bangladesh, is 39 cents an hour, which is the lowest out of any of the countries that we're focusing on. But in China, the minimum wage is on average about 93 cents. Okay, let me stop you there, James. Yeah. Can you explain the difference between a minimum wage and a living wage? Sure. A living wage is the amount of money that a worker needs to earn 
for the basics in life. And the basics are? Enough food, access to health, adequate accommodation, access to transport and energy, and enough money left over at the end of the month to put aside in case something... A safety net. Yeah, a safety net. So it's not catastrophic if circumstances arise that impact on their ability to earn. So if they get sick or if they have to care for a parent or... Or if they get fired. So what is a minimum wage? So a minimum wage is the legal benchmark. Each country will set their minimum wage, you know, according to a whole bunch of different reasons. Who decides then? Governments? Governments decide what the minimum wage is. But it's over the last, you know, 20 years, it's been in a government's interest to attract foreign investment and to convince companies that, you know, you want to come and produce clothing in my country, therefore we'll set a minimum wage fairly low. And the problem is that they've set it so low, which is it might be attractive for H&M to set up a factory, but they're not paying workers enough you know, to afford the basics. Okay, so James, who decides what a living wage is? So if governments benchmark the minimum wage and then enact that into law, who comes along and says, actually, there's a disparity, a living wage is X? So there's a couple of different benchmarks around how to work out what a living wage is. One is the Asian floor wage and one is the anchor methodology. The Asia Floor Wage Alliance, AFWA, is an international alliance of trade unions and labour rights activists. And the Asia Floor Wage is all about proposing a living wage that holds across Asia. It's calculated in PPP dollars, and that stands for Purchasing Power Parity. And it's an imaginary currency built on the consumption of goods and services by people that basically allows them to compare the living standards between countries, regardless of the national currency. So what they're trying to do with this is remove the temptation for companies to look for wage differences in different countries and use them to race to the bottom. So, you know, pull out of one country to manufacture in another with lower costs. And the Anker methodology, that's A-N-K-E-R, is named after its authors and they are Richard and Martha Anker, who basically spent their careers working for the ILO and the World Health Organization. And they wrote this thing called Living Wages Around the World, Manual for Measurement. And they've worked with companies like Eileen Fisher and Tiffany & Co on supply chains and calculating living wages in different countries. The minimum wage in Bangladesh is $87 a month, which is not a living wage. It's not enough to cover basic needs. And the living wage in Bangladesh is $248 a month. It's actually quite a big gap. It's a huge gap. But if you jump from that to even China, where the minimum wage is $194 Australian dollars a month, a live, an estimated living wage is 463 So actually we're seeing big gaps across the board. We're seeing big gaps across the board. Let's talk about what she makes. Why is it what she makes? Why not what he makes? When we launched this campaign, we knew we wanted to create a campaign about living wages. This is the critical next step in the ethical fashion conversation. Oxfam Australia has been campaigning on ethical fashion for the last 20 years and we've looked at lots of different issues. We looked at sweatshops, um, sandblasting, And then since Rana Plaza, we've been looking at issues like transparency, signing the Bangladesh Fire and Safety Accord. Living wage fits as this critical next step in this journey towards a fair fashion industry. And what we've found is that 80% of the workforce in the garment industry are women. But often the gender question is left as like a bullet point within a campaign or a bullet point within the broader conversation. But by calling it what she makes it, there's no hiding. You know, this is, it's a workers' rights issue, but it's also a women's rights issue. And I think what's exciting about what she makes is that this is an overtly feminist 
campaign. It's about it's about the women that, that make our clothing. And I think that there's this really interesting and uncomfortable contrast between the fashion industry in general as ambassadors and as champions of women's rights. And then the flip side, which is that the majority of the workforce at the fast fashion industry employs are women and they're not being paid enough to cover the basics. Can you describe to us a little bit about one of these women's lives, one of these garment workers who was interviewed by your researchers? Yeah. So preparing for what she makes, our researchers did a trip to kind of, make, I guess, make sense of the data. Like living wages, this is not a new question. All the companies that we're targeting, a lot of them have something about living wage on their websites. We've been talking about living wages for a long time. And we knew that there was this stark disparity between the minimum wage in the country and what a living wage needs to be. One of the women, Fatima, who's featured in this campaign, um, she has a face covered in the video and in the images that are on the website, specifically because of fear of retribution from her employers. And so, you know, we interviewed six women. It was hard to find women because of a security issue that were happy and were felt safe and comfortable to talk about, you know, their situation. And even some of the women that we interviewed you know, told us stories about there being retribution at work when they brought up issues of health and safety or pay. You know, they were fired or they were suspended from work. So it's a, it's a, real, it's a real issue, and so their faces are covered, you know, for that reason. But Fatima is a 20-year-old woman working in Dakar in Bangladesh, and some of the clothing that she makes goes to companies like Big W and H&M, and she's earning 43 cents an hour in her factory, which is well below, you know, the living wage. Her living conditions that she lives in a small room that she rents with two other women who are garment workers, and there's no furniture in this room. It's a small concrete room with no beds. No beds? No beds, and it's running water is only available for one hour, three times a day. Oh, my God. She collects water in the morning before work and stores it in a plastic drum in her room. Fatima's story kind of it makes sense of what it means not to be paid enough to live when you start to think about who you're responsible for. There's this incredible quote, um, if I was paid a better wage, I would move into a flat and bring my mother with me because now, whenever I am able to eat, I'm always thinking, I'm eating, but how is my mother right now? I can't see her. Is she eating as well? Is she getting food? When we hear these stories as consumers of clothing, I'm sure it makes everyone feel upset. I mean... None of us want to be responsible or in any way related to stories like this, especially not in order to make us feel more glamorous or more fashionable or, you know, these aren't basic needs. These are privileges and joys to have some lovely new clothes. What can we do about this? I want to talk to you about how we can tackle the living wage problem. So governments set minimum wages. NGOs, in collaboration with other organisations, work out what living wages are. There's this huge disparity. What can we do? Because at the moment we're leaving it to brands to do the right thing and clearly they're not always doing the right thing. No, they're not always doing the right thing. But I think what's exciting about what she makes and really the much broader conversation or campaign for ethical fashion is that consumers have agency, we have power. And even though you know this conversation around living wages is just starting... This is not a a quick fix, but we have watched the fashion industry change over the last two decades, and a a large part of that can be attributed to 
popular support, popular mobilization. Pressure on brands saying, actually, we're not into this. We want you to do better. Yeah, yeah. If we're going to support you. Yeah, and, and brands listen. It's not like they can't afford to pay workers properly, is it? I mean, here's a quote from Oxfam Australia's CEO, Helen Sokey. In 2016, the turnover for the Australian fashion industry was about $27 billion. Yet garment workers often earn too little to live in a space with their own bedroom, to have enough to sustainably feed themselves and to look after their needs. It's not a problem of there being not enough money in this industry. The place is awash with cash. Yeah, totally. And the research that we released with What She Makes, that was done in partnership with Deloitte Access Economics, they crunched the numbers on a basic white T-shirt. $20 white t-shirt you can buy from any major department store. And they found that on average only 4% of a t-shirt was going back to the worker. But the good news is that they found that it would only take 1% extra to radically change this equation. It would take 1% extra for a worker to be paid a living wage. When you first hear these numbers, the woeful wages that are being paid to workers and also just the lack of responsibility that's being taken by brands, what you think is the reason they won't do it is because it would hugely dent their profit margins or because they'd have to pass on huge rises in cost to the consumer and we won't wear it. But 1%, not much. No, it doesn't seem much. Why don't they do it then? (laughs) We don't want to underplay how complicated the supply chain is and what she makes is asking companies to take steps towards a living wage. We're not asking for a living wage by the end of 2018. Actually, if you go to What She Makes website, you'll see a company tracker that has the companies that we're targeting and then five steps towards a living wage. And companies are already acting. It's not like no one has started. And you know, it's encouraging to see companies like Target and Big W signing onto agreements saying, that oh, we're interested in living wage, we're committed to a living wage, but we need timelines. We need you know, a commitment saying we'll produce a roadmap in 12 months and then within three to six years we'll actually implement living wages. We are now joined by Joy Kiriasu, Oxfam Australia's Fair Economies Advocacy Manager. We worked with an organisation called Karma Jibinari, which means working women is the literal translation in Bangladesh, to come and meet some of the women that they work with. They're an Oxfam partner in Bangladesh and talk to them about their lives. So the the women in the report are very brave for coming forward and telling their story and obviously we had to explain to them this is about a big campaign where we're trying to work on not just in Bangladesh but in many garment-producing countries really raising women's wages. So those three women are very brave and they told us their stories, took us into their homes. One of the women you would have seen in the report Um, showed us, for example, where she sleeps, which is on a concrete floor um, because she can't even afford a mattress. Um, And that's with a number of other women also sharing the room with her. James shared the story Mm. of Fatima, but can you tell us another woman's story? Yeah, absolutely. So Anju, which is the woman who's on the cover, also she lives in in a slum and she lives with her husband. And one of the things that was quite tough to hear, I guess, about Anju's story, but also very brave of her to share, is that uh, she has a couple of children who she had when she was quite young. And because her and her husband are so poor, they have to work all day. She often works 12 hours a day and she earns 37 cents an hour. What has happened is that there was no one at home really to look after her kids. And in the slum where they live, um, one of her children got bitten by a dog at one point, And that was very upsetting for her. 
So what? Her no and her one husband. Around to ha- no one no, looking after them. No one to no look after care. them. I mean, when we think no, about the not. childcare debate in Australia, we mm. haven't gotten any clear what it's like. No there. childcare, and also a big threat in many garment-producing companies. If you are a young woman, and most women who work in garment factories are, that you will lose your job if you get pregnant as well. Um, so no kind of provisions there either often or, you know, there might be law but then that law isn't necessarily enforced. Anyway, so for Anju um, and her husband, what they did was make quite a heartbreaking decision which was to send their two daughters to go and live quite far away, hours out of the capital Dakar, um, so that they could live with um, in-laws and be safe basically. Um, but what that means for Anju and her husband, because they are so poor, they're months behind in rent, is that they only get to see their daughters about twice a year, which is horrifying and something that was very upsetting for her. And probably for you as a woman and as presumably a feminist, how does it make you feel to work on a report like this? Look, it makes me proud, but also it's been hard. Certainly going to Bangladesh and meeting our partners and the women, uh, particularly from Kaaba Jiminari, who, who work on this every day, really can leave you feeling energised because they are such powerful, articulate, incredible feminists that are working on women's rights day in, day out across a range of different sectors. So that is very energising. And also you're um, but doing it's also something hard. powerful too because yeah. here's, here's this report on the desk in front of us and it's been received very enthusiastically by the media. There's loads of stories out there. People are talking about it. That's making a difference. Yeah, we certainly hope it's making a difference. And obviously, as Oxfam, we do a lot of outreach to companies as well before we release a report like this and during. And certainly a lot of companies have come back to us. So that is something that's very positive. And I'm looking forward and very much hoping to see some concrete movement from those companies. Okay, cool. I want to finish up with that because I'm very interested in knowing how brands are reacting. So Mm. you do reach out to brands before you put out a report like this to say, this is what we're doing. Yep. What were some of the reactions that you got? On the most part, we had quite a positive reaction. I mean, we've been talking about living wages for quite some time. We also produced earlier in the year a more technical report that just outlined to companies, these are the steps you can do. Here's all the different pathways because it's we a complicated thing. to try to do something That's about right. it. That's right. But at that time also said to them, you know, and we're going to start talking publicly about this issue, just so you know. So for the most part, we've had a response from companies that has been, you know, obviously companies aren't happy when you put something out that says that you're not doing good enough, which frankly they aren't. But we've had some good conversations with companies about how they can do better, what things they are doing, and really looking at some of the intricacies of you know, what do I need to do to get the basics right on human rights in my supply chain? And then what are the components of making a real and credible commitment to living wages? You find often a lot of companies have the word living wages in their code of conduct. And then underneath that heading, they'll have a definition that doesn't mean living wages or at all. Or a little asterisk saying didn't really mean it. <laughs> Not exactly, but almost, yeah. So so we've had a lot of um, discussions with companies about... How you define it. How you define it and what you really need to commit to. And actually to. this is a thing. It's not just mm. something you get to define yourself. I mean, it's not, and it's that. not just something you put on your website. You mean you've got to commit to actual action and a time frame. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't go. 
you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you